Good morning. We are here uh, again uh, in this series on um, Christian contentment, uh, and we are continuing in Burroughs' book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. We are... You can't hear? Can you up the sound maybe a little bit? Can you guys hear me in the back? No? <laughs> It's going to be a long class, Tim. It's going to be a long class. <laughs> That's okay. All right. Well, cool. Uh, sounds like sound is working. Excellent. All right. So again, class six, rare jewel of Christian contentment. Uh, why don't we open in a word of prayer, and then we'll talk about kind of uh, where we're going to go for the next couple of weeks as we transition from, from Tim, Tim's content to mine. Oh, Lord, thank you for this opportunity to... Once again, just gather together as your people, once again, to crack open your word and to be encouraged, edified, and convicted. I pray, Lord, that you would grant us all open hearts and open minds as we receive what you would have for us today. Guard me from error, and may this just be a fruitful, productive time for the glory of Christ. Amen. All right, well, as Tim has uh, been mentioning for the last couple weeks with a suspicious amount of glee, I might add. Uh, we are transitioning a little bit uh, in uh, Burroughs' content. So the first you know, five uh, weeks of this class and those chapters covers had really been on the subject of contentment, what it is. Um, and, and that content has, you know, of course, it's been all rainbows and unicorns and happy stuff, right? Nothing convicting or hard whatsoever so far. Um, well, if it was convicting, Burroughs dials it up a notch, um, and he kind of goes uh, full tilt in these next four or so chapters. Um, we are transitioning from contentment to discontentment. And so uh, think of the first five weeks as all the things that we're supposed to do, and then the next uh, four weeks essentially as all the things we're not supposed to do. Um, and I'm ready to go. I've got, uh, I've got lubrication. I've got my, my notes in all caps. I'm ready to yell at you for the next four weeks. It's going to be great. Don't worry. Um, and and the, reason, the reason why Burroughs sort of ups, dials it up a notch is, is the fact that discontentment, he makes this case over and over and over and over again, it is evil. It is truly, truly evil. And that's actually kind of a, 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 a pretty decent outline for, uh, again, those four weeks. We're going to end on a high note. The last week is going to be moving from discontentment to contentment. Uh, but for the next four weeks, it's all going to be about why discontentment is so bad, what makes it bad, those sorts of things. And in these four chapters, he has three big objectives. Um, the first one covers this week and next week, and it is just demonstrating what discontentment is and why it is so evil. After that, uh, he then transitions into um, um, uh, situations in which discontentment is especially bad, and then he transitions finally into uh, kind of kicking our legs out from under us. If any of us wants to kind of hold on to our discontentment, wants to justify our lack of contentment, his goal is to say, 
nope, and, and knock out the legs from under us, kick out the stand we're standing on, and get us to repentance. And so, as you can see, this is, um, you know, harder content to go through emotionally, um, and so it's going to be uh, you know, a bit of a challenge, I think. Um, but a couple of disclaimers as we do that. I do want to just kind of point out that this is still meant to be interactive. I'm not actually going to be yelling at anybody for three weeks, four weeks, whatever it is. Um, this is not preaching. This is teaching. This is meant to be something where we are still interacting together. Um, and in that vein, um, I, I especially don't want the content to make people to shy away from raising their hands, not just in terms of the normal participation, but especially as, as Burroughs does get kind of practical. So for this week, this week and next week, it's all about the evil of discontentment, but he focuses in on proving that out, but also talking about its harmful effects. Uh, he has a whole section on why it's stupid, too. That'll be fun. Um, but but he, as he goes through things like the harmful effects, there may be folks in this room who have experienced some of those, and kind of sharing those stories can be especially helpful, edifying, encouraging, um, admonishing for others as well. So... Uh, while I may have joked about this being fire and brimstone, please note that this is still meant to be a teaching time. Still covet your feedback. It's not meant to be one-sided in any way, shape, or form. Um, also, to note, uh, if you're following along with the books, all the content that I'm going to be using is directly from Burroughs, either explicitly or implicitly, uh, with a couple of minor exceptions. But I'm going to change the order around a little bit. Also, Burroughs likes, as you've seen from, from Tim's notes, he likes making 22 points where maybe seven would work. Um, so I'm going to try to condense a little bit as well uh, as we go. Uh, but today's big idea there in your notes is pretty simple. Um, if contentedness is godly and good, then discontentedness is ungodly and evil. And not just kind of bad, but really, really bad. Uh, and to prove that, I need to start off with some definitions. And one more disclaimer, we're not getting through all this content today. Um, chapters 8 and chapter 9, this week and next week, it's one big unit of thought, so it's pretty fluid. Uh, so guarantee we are going to uh, have a part two next week, and that is deliberate. Um, and in fact, we're probably going to spend most of our time, I think, this morning working on a definition of discontentment, showing that in scripture, and then begin seeing both from the definition itself and uh, from a few other texts why it is evil. But uh, as we begin defining it, I, I, I do want to, you know, if I'm going to take one issue with this book, it's the fact that Burroughs doesn't do this piece up front. He kind of does it by implication in these chapters. Um, you can kind of get a sense for what discontentment is. Um, but if we're going to, you know, pound the table and say it's bad, I think we need to define it up front. And one of the reasons why I feel so strongly about that is there's a lot of nitty gritty practical reality emotional stuff that we go through especially when bad things happen to us whether it's our fault or not when god has a let's just call it a, a less than happy providence for us we're going to feel feelings and some of those feelings are going to be wrong some are going to be right some are going to fall under the header of discontentment and others aren't and so Burroughs has so far defined contentment as that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And what I don't want to do is to have you walk away or start this, this next round of, of classes simply by saying, if I don't feel that, then I'm automatically discontent. Because one, that wouldn't be biblical. Uh, it wouldn't kind of address the nuances that I think we are all wrestling through from time to time in our lives. For example, 
you know, um, I don't want anyone to, to walk away thinking that a joyous, happy-go-lucky attitude is always the expectation, um, as we're going to see. That's, that's clearly not biblical. But also, too, you know, wrestling through that, if you, if you tomorrow got a cancer diagnosis, we should ask ourselves, is it, is it discontent? Are you discontent if you feel confused or sad about that? If um, you're trying to get a promotion at work and someone else gets it who cheated, is it discontented to feel that that situation was unfair? Uh, when, does that, when does that feeling transition into discontentedness? Um, if your wife, spouse, boss, kids, neighbors, whoever, accuse you of doing something you didn't do, are you discontent if you do anything less than just sort of smile and happily you know, uh, endure it? Is it discontent if you, are you discontent if you were to defend yourself or, or, or address the situation directly? So again, there, there's these, these, these nuances that we kind of have to work through in our daily lives as it relates to the subject of discontentedness. So it's important, I think, that we spend some time laboring some time to, uh, to define it. And to do that, we are going to look at an example that Burroughs uses several times in these chapters, specifically Numbers 16. Um, so I would encourage everyone to turn there. We're going to be burying our heads in that text for a little while. Numbers chapter 16. Um, and it's a story of Korah's rebellion as you all turn there. Um, before we get into it, can I get three volunteers to read little chunks? Josh, okay. Josh, if you can do verses one to three when I prompt you, please. Two more. Stacy, thank you. Uh, eight to 11. And then one more. Uh, Matt, uh, 12 to 14. So 1 to 3, 8, 11, 12 to 14. All right, so again, this is uh, number 16. This is Korah's rebellion. And uh, Burroughs uses this text as a repeated example of discontentment in action. So, uh, Josh, you had 1 to 3. Read verses 1 to 3 loud and proud, please. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Gilead, and uh, the sons of Pelet, sons of Reuben, took others, and they rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, those called upon by the assembly, men of renown. Then they assembled together against Moses and Aaron, and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and Yahweh is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of Yahweh? All right, so this is the opening confrontation scene in, in the story. And in verse 3, it says, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Um, and then their accusation is, why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So this looks, for all intents and purposes, like a leadership challenge. We're all people of God here. Why do you get to be in charge, Moses and Aaron, is essentially what Korah and company are asking. Um, and there is a, not, not an uh, implicit, but an explicit ap, uh, uh, accusation that they made themselves the leaders. That's what it says there at the end of verse 3. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Um, Moses, people saying, you made yourself a leader. Why do you think you're better than us? Why do you think you get to tell us where to go and what to do? And so that is the opening scene. That's the confrontation. Um, if you skip down to verse 8, we see Moses' response to Korah. And I think, Stacy, you had 8 to 11, right? Thank you. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself and to do 
service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers and sons of Levi with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Keep going. Yeah, please one more. Um, therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? Perfect. And so Moses' response, and the reason why I had you read the longer portion, verse 8 is going to be important. We're going to come back to it later. But zero in there on verse 11. And while the people are confronting Aaron and Moses, Moses' commentary is, this isn't about me. You're taking issue with God. Uh, It is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. And that's because the Lord is the one who has ordained Moses and Aaron in that position of leadership. He has ordained uh, uh, all the positions of leadership in, in, in Israel, the organization of the 12 tribes, their inheritance, their roles. God is sovereign. God has laid all of that out. And so taking issue with what God has ordained is taking issue with God himself. And that's Moses' response to the people. Now, Korah was not the only conspirator here. He had a couple of others. Uh, Guys by the name of Dathan and Abiram were also involved. Um, And uh, Moses summons them uh, to have a conversation. And that summoning and their response is verses 12 to 14. Matt. Nathan and Abiram, the son of Eliab, and they said, We will not come up. It is a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make for yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Perfect. So we now get to sort of peel back the layer of the onion a little bit and we see what really the issue is. Yes, it's a challenge to Moses and Aaron and their leadership, but the root of that challenge is here in what Dathan and Abiram say. Um, While it may be framed as a conflict over leadership and power, this is less about who's in charge, and it's more about what the people are getting. Their issue is their lack of comfort. That's really what the problem is here. Um, you know, they, they say, uh, you brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness. You've not given us our inheritance of fields and vineyards. You've not bro- you know, brought us into this better land. They don't like their circumstances, and that is ultimately why they're aiming at regime change here. They, they want new leaders to get the outcomes that they're craving. And verse 13 and 14 tell us a lot. There's, there's three kind of principles that are interesting to take away from the story. And the first one is that we see that they're romanticizing Egypt. You have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey. Which is stupid. That's just crazy. I mean, they were slaves in the land. Their children were murdered by way of population control. Like, this was not a good thing. Egypt was bad for them. Yes, it was, you know, rich. But Israel had a hard time. Um, And by the way, just sort of a side note, if you ever, 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 ever find yourself thinking fondly about your time before you were saved, giant red flag, giant red flag, which is exactly what Israel is doing here. They're not in their right mind. They're not thinking about this rightly. They're romanticizing what life was like prior to their salvation, prior to their deliverance from Egypt. It also tells us that they are mistrusting God in their discontentedness. Um, Notice 
it's a, is it a small thing that you've brought us up out of the land of milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? Um, okay, so, so God has delivered them in a miraculous way at this point in time in the story. And they're thinking that he brought that he did all of that just to kill them in a desert somewhere. I mean, there's no, there's obviously no trust in God's sovereign uh, uh, orchestrating of their lives um, at at this point. And, and notice, notice the quasi atheistic framing as well. Um, they don't mention God at all in this. They, they're talking to Moses, and they say, "You have brought us up out of Egypt." Um, you have made yourself a prince over us. You have not brought us into a land nor given us inheritances. God's not even in the picture for these people right now. Um, this is all about Moses, which is also completely crazy. Uh, they, God has done a lot in front of their very eyes at this point in the story. You have to not only have ignored their own personal experiences with God, but they also have to have ignored everything that Moses told them God has told him. In other words, at this point, they are rejecting both their own experience of God's care and the word of God itself to get to the position that they're in. And finally, we see in these two verses um, that these people are, are primarily focused on their comfort on their stomachs. Verse 14 concludes with, you've not brought us out of that land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. And that's the root of the issue. They don't want to be inconvenienced. They're in this place. They don't want to be. They don't like it. They have no recognition clearly of why they're in the situation that they're in. No faith that there's a purpose or a point to it. They just know that life doesn't match their expectations. That's what they know. Life does not match their expectations. So what happens? Well, Moses tells the people, you think I, I raised myself up? Well, as proof that I didn't, to prove that it was the Lord who raised me up, the earth is going to open up and swallow Korah and company. And that's exactly what happens. And that's uh, sort of mo- in verse 30, if you scroll your eyes down to verse 30, you see Moses' um, statement to that effect of the people, if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down to Sheol alive, then you shall know that these men have, and notice what he says there, they have despised the Lord. So as I've been kind of belaboring so far, this atheistic framing, this mistrust in God, this desire to see a different leadership, this is... You know, the summary of what they're doing is a despising of the Lord. Their discontent over their circumstances is a despising of the Lord, which means that when the ground opens up, this punishment is well-deserved. And you would think that might end the story, but oh no, it doesn't quite end there. In verse 41, scroll down a little bit further. By the way, I say scroll as if you're looking at a phone. Um, flip, whatever you want to do is fine. But look down at verse 41. Um, it's, it says, on the next day, so after the earth swallowed up and killed a bunch of rebellious traitors, uh, the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. Which is also crazy if you stop and think about it. God did that, not Moses. So why are you blaming the earth swallowing up on Moses and Aaron? And then second, these were rebels, people of the Lord. That's a, that's a, that's a high, high, high credit to give these people who have just despised the Lord, who've confronted him and have suffered the consequences accordingly. 
And as a result of this second grumbling, the Lord unleashes a plague on the people, kills about 15,000 or so. Um, and the reason why I'm, I'm highlighting this, this second grumbling piece is flip over, if you, if you will, to uh, uh, chapter 17. So it's a little bit of a, you know, sort of a, a post-event commentary. But in verse 41, as I just read, 1641, it said that Israel grumbled against the Lord and Moses. But now look at 1710. And, and I'll, ask, I'll ask you guys this question. In 1710, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony of the Lord to be kept as a sign for the... What's that word? Rebels. The people who grumbled are being described as rebels. This complaining, this murmuring that they did about what the Lord did to uh, Korah and company is itself rebellion against God. That's the divine commentary on what Israel did at the end of the story of Korah. These people took issue with God's judgment, and God's, God calls them rebels because of it. And this tells us that even complaining, grumbling, which is the verbal fruit of a discontented heart, is likewise the sin of rebellion against God. And uh, if that doesn't give you pause, it probably should. This is a high bar that we're, we're talking about here. This is a pretty high bar that we're talking about here when we talk about the subject of discontentment. It is evil, and it is completely bound up in rebellion. Now, the next place we're going to go in your notes is sort of distilling down what we just saw into about seven takeaways. But let me just pause and see if there's any questions or comments so far on the story. Hopefully everyone's tracking. If you're not, let me know. Well, earlier when you started off using the word evil, it seemed a little harsh. It really isn't, is it? It's it's right on. And I think um, um, we uh, don't see uh, rebellion or discontentment as that harsh, but we know who the holy God is. It really enlightens it, doesn't it? It does. It does. That's a good point. It's, It's easy to kind of see discontentment um, you know, as just something we feel, something we're going through, but there is, it is, it is linked with rebellion, it is evil. And that, by the way, is why I'm not starting with a definition. I wanted to go to the text first, because if I just defined it, you'd probably not believe me. So we're, we're going to build it to a definition that I think that works. Did I see you have a hand? No? Okay. All right. Sorry. Back there. Yes. My name is Randy. Randy. I like your statement that you made, grumbling is the fruit of discontentment in the heart. We're called to be fruit judges. It's very easy to check our own fruit if we're willing to look. So I, I really like that. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but discontentmentness, whatever, whatever the actual right term is, um, is a heart issue, and it has various outward workings, or not in some cases, um, but it fundamentally is a heart issue as we're going to see. Any other questions or comments? Let's, uh, let's distill down what we've seen here. And the goal of doing this into these seven takeaways, which are in your notes, uh, is to not only just kind of help us understand a little bit of what we read, but also I think these are takeaways that help us understand what discontentment is and also perhaps diagnose it in our own lives. 
So, seven takeaways we saw from number 16. First and foremost, our discontentment doesn't have to be explicitly against the Lord to be against the Lord. This started out with a regime change, rebellion, leadership issue. If the Lord ordains everything that happens, taking issue with anything that happens is ultimately taking issue with the Lord. That's the very high and hard principle that we see in this text. Whether it's circumstances, leadership, politics, whatever it happens to be, the Lord's still sovereign over it. He still ordained it. He still made it come to pass. Our discontentment, if it's aimed at something else, still has that Godward element to it. Second point, discontentedness is still, is rebellion, or at the very least, at the very least, it is related to rebellion and can lead to rebellion against God. Um, Burroughs in the chapter calls it the seed of rebellion. I think he's, he's referring to it more as sort of the outward action, but to be discontented in one's heart as we kind of work through what that looks like and what that means is very much linked up with being a, a rebel, being, being against God and what he is doing in the world. Um, but notice, of course, under that same header, it can manifest differently with Korah, Dathan, Abiram. This was an attack on the actual leadership structure in Israel, whereas Israel in 1641, it was, it was just grumbling. So discontented hearts all around, but very different manifestations of it in practice. Third, uh, discontentedness, discontentment minimizes or ignores the blessings that we have. Now, in order to, and that was kind of the point of, I, I said, you, how, how do you mark verse 8 in chapter 16? Moses' response to Datham and Abiram was, is it, is it such a small thing that the Lord marked you out, that he gave you these roles, he gave you these blessings? In order, in order to be discontent about our circumstances, there is almost inevitably a minimization of the good things that God has given us in our lives, what he's working together for our good. We, we kind of have to focus on what we don't want to the exclusion of what we have. That's kind of what happens in someone's heart and mind as they experience discontentment. Number four, discontentment is often, maybe not always, but very much often rooted in a desire for creature comforts or other worldly desires. Number five, discontentment can result in our romanticizing sin or minimizing the blessings of righteousness. To the extent that discontentment is focused on worldly situations, goods, uh, uh, privilege, status, whatever, we have to, we inevitably uh, uh, minimize the blessing of standing before the Lord in good conscience. We minimize the, the blessing of a Christ-like character. There is a diminishing of that in the context of discontentment. Six, discontentment is linked to an atheistic, unbelieving mistrust of God, uh, maybe not explicitly stated, but certainly in our hearts. And then number seven, as we clearly saw to, to Sherry's point, discontentment deserves the wrath of God. It is evil. So those are the seven points that we saw, I think, in, in number 16 that I'll keep alluding to, I think, throughout this course, but uh, that helps us distill down what we saw and also, as we'll see in a second, diagnose whether or not what we're feeling might be discontentedness in our lives. Tim. Yeah, just, I, I, I'm thinking about this one about rebellion. Um, 
I, I'm, I'm also wondering, you know, kind of the question of what about when you truly have an unjust leader? Because, um, and you brought up too, like, well, there are complexities like true injustice or true, you know, true evil that, that we face. But I think of people like Dave, well, David, and obviously he's typifying Christ, and David, while avoiding Saul and as appropriate critiquing Saul and, and being truthful about what Saul was doing, he bent over backward to not undermine Saul's position, mm-hmm. to uphold his position. And even Jesus, in his harsh critiques of the religious leaders, he says in Matthew 23, they read Moses to you, do what they say, but not what they do. And at no point does he try to un, like overturn the authority structures. He just calls the sin and hypocrisy out where it is. Mm-hmm. But I think there's this rebellion and grumbling there's this like overflow of of uh, displeasure it's like uncontrolled overflow of displeasure that's that's just mad as opposed to going kind of more precisely like well this is sin and this is wrong but I'm not out to overthrow the leader anyway it's just kind of interesting no and you're, you're hitting on the very reason why we're spending as much time as we are belaboring this point of definition because at the end of the day look we are complicated emotional creatures you can feel sort of different things at the same time uh, when uh, I forget I forget uh, the, the reference but when when the man comes to Jesus and says I believe help my unbelief with reference to healing his daughter he's experiencing both of those things at the same time um, we, we can feel we can feel indignant at the evil of a situation you know like going back to that promotion if someone if your coworker lied and cheated to get the promotion over you you can feel to a certain extent, that this is wrong, but you can also feel discontent about it. Um, you know, and, and, and there's also a host of other bad emotions. Jesus says, don't be anxious, but doesn't necessarily mean that anxiety is the same thing as discontentment. So there's, 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 there's sort of a whole host of, of emotional issues that we kind of have to wrestle and process through. But in the context of this class, to Tim's point, discontentment is often linked with and we'll see this in a second, there's, a, there's sort of like a bitterness, there's an anger, there's a um, God has done me wrong at the core of it. Regardless of whatever else you may be feeling or going through, that's at the root of discontentment. And I've just jumped like three pages in my notes, but um, I'll, I'll hopefully get us on the same page there. Actually, in fact, um, this next uh, point in your outline is a Barosian definition of discontentment. Uh, while he doesn't define it, I think based off of everything he says in the chapters and what we saw in number 16, this definition is, is, a, um, is a pretty decent one. But it, what I put in your notes there is, is discontentment is when we, sinful and short-sighted specks of dust that we are, arrogantly and presumptuously believe that the sovereign, omniscient, good, loving, perfect king of the universe has shorted us in his providences. And that's going to look very different for for folks. It's going to manifest differently from folks. But that heart attitude of this isn't fair, God has done me wrong, that's at the core of what discontentment is. And you might be sinning in different ways. You might have jealousy, covetousness, anxiety, fear. You might be discontent and have those things. But if at the core of what you're feeling is, this isn't right, God has done me wrong, something wrong with his providence, you're, you're, you're looking at discontentment. 
Now, um, I defined it that way for two reasons. One, because I think it's also helpful to see how evil it is when you kind of frame it in that, in that light. Um, but also, as I just alluded to, because it's important to see it in contrast or in distinction from other less than joyous responses to uh, sovereign providences. And this is where I want to want to encourage uh, some folks here because Burroughs doesn't say, and I, I would disagree with, him, disagree with him if he did, that the mere feeling of, say, confusion or disappointment or discouragement or frustration, those aren't automatically discontentment. Those are, those are, there, there's, some, there's some legitimacy to those sorts of feelings when you're struck with a, a, a hard providence. Um, discontentment is not merely less than a blissful, joyous, happy-go-lucky state of mind. Um, in fact, can anyone think of a particular person in the New Testament who reacted to God's will submissively, obediently, but not always in that sort of shucks darn happy-go-lucky way? Anyone want to throw a name out? Jesus, absolutely. And to belabor that point just a little bit, uh, Luke 12, 49 to 50. I came to cast fire on the earth, this is Jesus speaking, and would it be that it were already kindled? I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Our Savior, perfect Savior, was distressed. He wasn't always a bundle of undisturbed joy. He was sinless and he was distressed. And then my favorite example is in Mark 14, which is the the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'll I'll just read, this is verses 32 to 35. It says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. That word distressed in Mark is a different word than Luke. Um, in, in Mark here, it carries the sense of like getting hit by a truck. That's kind of the, the, the nature of it. You know that feeling when you're kind of going about your day and all of a sudden you get that phone call and it's just some horrible thing that happened and you just feel overwhelmed by it. I mean, it just hits you and everything stops and you're not entirely sure which way is up. That's the feeling that we're, we're talking about here. And when it says he was, he was troubled, this is someone who is so concerned, um, in some cases fear comes into it, but so concerned about what's going to happen that they become immobile. In fact, going back down, looking at verse 35, so I stopped at verse 33, um, Jesus goes on to say, my soul is very sorrowful, sorrowful even to death, mark that, remain here and watch. And then going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed. He didn't stop and sit down. He fell to the ground. It, this, is, this is someone who just got hit with something to the point of immobility, and he can do nothing more than just kind of hit the ground and pray. Not joy. Not discontentment. We have our perfect Savior in Luke, who is distressed. We have our perfect Savior in Mark, who is overwhelmed to the point of being unable to do much more than fall to the ground and pray. He is afflicted with such grief that he says it's even to the point of death, and he even prays for God to change his circumstances. And none of that is discontentment. So there is, 
I'm, I'm beating this horse, I know, but while Burroughs defines what contentment is, it does not mean that discontentment is anything less than this joyous, happy-go-lucky submission to God's will. If we are... Um, um, it, it's, more than, it's more than not liking something that God has done. It's, it's more than being troubled over a circumstance. We are discontented rebels when we give in to those feelings, when we decide that we have been shorted by God or that God is wrong or that he's unjust in doing something. That's, again, the core of discontentment. Discontentment is a heart issue that challenges God's good, just governance of the world. And I think you see that in Korah, and that's why I started with that, that story, because I think if you, if you think about discontentment in light of what Israel did, what Korah did, you've got a pretty good picture of this heart attitude that overflows and whatever it's going to overflow into. Does that make sense? Any questions or comments on that? Do we feel like we're on the same page? And by the way, there's community groups tonight, so if you want to wrestle through things, it's a great place to do it. Uh, but any any questions, any comments? Anyone want to yell at me? Anything at all? No? Just to say that in the garden, the, the evidence that he lands at contentment is that the final word is your will be done. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Pain and submission. Mm-hmm. Sadness and submission. The, the point of that story is it's not joy all the way through. We can feel other things that look less than just merrily skipping on our way. Um, and sometimes we talk about contentment and then we don't define its opposite. It's just, it's really easy to get the wrong impression. And if we're going to bind consciences over the next couple of weeks, we should make very clear what it is that we're, we're guilty or not of. Somebody else had a hand, I thought. Uh, let's go right back. Yeah, first garden, discontentment was introduced. Oh, yeah, the first card. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Gary. Uh, just just a comment I want to make just because I'm an old cod who's been around a while. And uh, the third point down, you say where discontentment minimize, minimizes, ignores our blessings. Mm-hmm. Um, I have found, now I won't get into all of that, but you know, little, little things can be quite disconcerting. I can remember the time winning run on third base. I got a chance to be here when I pop up. And, you know, if I had just hit it long enough. Okay. And of course, some little irritations that can build through through the years. You can start piling them up. And if you start thinking about them, you can get discontent. So all you young people, you know, have hope. Have, you're going to make it. Because a thing that a practical thing that I would like to share with all of you is that through our prayer time, and Barbara and I have now, thanks to this church, the teachings of our young pastor and our other younger young well our younger pastor and our young pastor, and I've learned a lot, and I pray much more now. And the thing that I have noticed through the years and in learning how to pray, and especially now in this old age time, is that uh, pray your blessings. Take the time to list the blessings and you'll be surprised how wonderful you can change all these little irritations 
and you'll have that time. So emphasize the blessings as much as possible, especially in your prayer time. So piece of advice from an old man. No, absolutely, 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 absolutely. Um, I, I can summarize that as have an attitude of gratitude, right? The old, the old uh, pithy statement. Um, but yes, no, I agreed, agreed, one hundred percent. And and that actually, you know, I, I, I think we're now on our outline. It's um, what is that? Oh, I didn't include it in there. Uh, it's in mine though. Uh, we're still we're, we're still in uh, in letter C. You know, there, there's a couple other things we gotta we gotta we gotta note together um, because. While I want everyone to see exactly what discontentment is, let's also not let ourselves off the hook here. Um, Burroughs is going to, again, knock our legs out from under us in a couple of weeks. But let's be honest. Um, because it is complicated, because there are a lot of, you know, sometimes good emotions and bad emotions we feel in a providence, it's easy for us to sort of self-justify our discontent. It's easy for us to say, I'm not mad at God. I just don't like the fact that that guy cheated to get that promotion. Um, well, maybe it's both. Maybe it's both. And we got to admit that it might be both. Um, yeah, going back to number 16... Korah could have told himself, and I'm guessing he probably did, that what he was really doing was looking out for the best interests of his family and his friends. I mean, this wilderness situation is nuts. Let's go back to a place where we're safe, where we're exposed, we're living off of, you know, like bread from the ground. What's that stuff? Like, let's just, let's go someplace where we have a more secure future. We need to, we need to protect our family and our friends. Um, Israel, uh, after they, or as they were grumbling about what happened to Korah and company, they, they could have they could have described themselves as just lovers of mercy, right? I mean, come on, what happened to grace? Be, let's be kind. Let's not let's not have everybody just die. Let's 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 have let's have an, a, an opportunity for reconciliation and redemption. I mean, you can you can justify your discontent with what God is doing um, pretty easily. And so those seven questions, I think, are really, really important. Um, and, you know, we, we can and should use them as diagnostic questions. Here's an example. Are, are you upset about something that the Lord has ordained in your life? And if the answer is yes, red, you know, careful, red flag. Are you, in being upset, are you neglecting to be grateful for the undeserved blessings that you do have? If so, another red flag. Is your issue that you're upset about related to creature comforts or otherworldly comforts? If so, another red flag. Are you prioritizing your comfort over Christ-likeness? Or are you right for, rightfully prioritizing your sanctification over anything this world has to offer? Are you believing that there is a good God in control? Or are you doubting either his sovereignty or his goodness? And are your feelings giving rise to complaining or other acts of disobedience? If you answered yes to those questions, some or, or most of those questions, there's a good chance that what you're looking at is a discontented heart. There might be other things going on, but you're probably looking at a discontented heart. And kind of twisting the knife a little bit, let's also just note too that discontentedness does not have to be something that you burn in your soul with for, for six years. Uh, it's not something where you're not a comic book villain who's like you know, shaking your fist at God in the morning. It, it can look a lot more subtle than that. You can be discontent for an hour, for a day, for a week, for a year, for longer. Um, it can be something short. You can be the type of person who is discontented frequently, but, you know, gets over it after, you know, a couple of hours, a couple of days, 
having a meal, going out for a run, whatever it happens to be. We can have a pattern of discontentment and get over it or whatever sort of modern therapeutic term we want to use and not recognize that this habitual issue in our hearts. It's kind of like getting into a, a fight with someone and then spending a week thinking hateful thoughts about them. You got over it after a week? Good, that's excellent. But you still spent a week hating the person. Like, you're not excused for that week. In the same way, discontentment can be something that is periodic, episodic, something that we can you know, have as a habit in our lives. Um, and you may never voice it. You may never complain. You may realize that uh, if I were to go and start railing to someone on this church about the things going on in my life, I would look petty or small or might get accused of discontentment, so you keep it to yourself. So just because you don't do anything about it doesn't mean that there's not a heart issue there. If you're the sort of person who is hurt or upset at God for how he governs your life, especially if it's over something worldly, whether you express that in your own heart or in more active forms of rebellion, you are probably guilty of the sin of discontentment. And for those brothers and sisters struggling with painful circumstances in your lives right now, if you are simply someone who is grieving, someone who's confused, someone who is struggling to understand what God is doing, even if it feels like that providence has hit you like a big rig, you may not be guilty of discontentment. But I would caution you, guard your heart, because it's right around the corner. Or at least it could be. Clear as mud? All right, good. Uh, happy to talk about it more with y'all if you want afterwards. Again, community groups are a great place to sort of work through specific situations. But let's move on to uh, Burroughs' big point, that discontentment is evil. And already hopefully beat that horse a little bit. No one should be in disagreement that is evil. But he spends a lot of time in these next two chapters explaining why it's evil. And specifically, he, um, he uh, uh, gives us two reasons. One, or two sort of like big header reasons. Number one, it misses the biblical priority of sanctification. Discontentment misses the biblical priority of, discontent, or of sanctification. And then number two, it denies the blessings of our salvation. It denies the blessings of our salvation. Um, and then, in fact, actually, I may have made a mistake in your notes. If you look at your outline, you see three, the evil discontentment. Um, everything under B there, so C, D, E, F, those are all sort of subheaders under it denies the blessings of our salvation, just, just as, a, as a side note. Um, Burroughs has a quote that I think if you're going to remember just one thing from today remember this quote he says oh that we could convince men and women that a murmuring spirit is a greater evil than any affliction whatever the affliction oh that we could convince men and women that a murmuring spirit is a greater evil than any affliction whatever the affliction consider that his sort of like thesis statement for the next uh, this week and the rest of next or the rest of this week and next um, but let's jump into sort of why he feels that way number one it misses discontentedness misses the biblical priority of sanctification and uh, looking for a couple more readers three other folks who might be willing to read get some hands okay uh, Christy you got Matthew 18 8 through 9 Matthew 18 8 through 9 who else 
back perfect. Uh, Jude 1, 17 to 23. So, well, there's only one in Jude. Jude 17 to 23. And then, Wilson, thank you. Uh, you got Romans 8, 28 to 30. So, question for us. What is the primary problem in our life? What problem is so primary, so important, that everything else pales in comparison? Anyone want to throw out an answer? What was that? Distrust. Distrust, okay. I thought you said drugs. Uh, sorry. <laughs> it's important, it's important. Distrust, absolutely. What else? Anyone else want to throw something at? My sin. Your sin. Your sin. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sin. Which, to say, you know, um, um, Christina's point, sorry, blanking for a second. On Christina's point, it's the same, you know, they're, they're, distrust is a form of that, but... Uh, primary problem in my life, whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, is fundamentally your sin. Christy, you had Matthew 18. Can you read that for us? Sure. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet uh, to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, into the hell of fire. It's a pretty clear statement on uh, you know the priority of of getting away from one sin. Um, Jude uh, seventeen to twenty three. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So that one, that one's a powerful passage as well. You know, the Holy Spirit says there's, we're, we're going to go from, from bad to worse. There's going to be these sins. Stay away from those things. But as you encounter believers who fail to heed that advice as they as they engage in worldly things help them but hating even the garment stained by the flesh i mean it's 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 a it's a powerful statement on kind of how we're supposed to look at sin the evil of sin it is something that is supposed to be repulsive to us that's that's our level of emotional involvement with sin it is i don't want to be anywhere near it that's how we're supposed to feel about it um, Wilson, Romans eight twenty-eight to 30, focusing on 29, please. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he you, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also ruled. For the unbeliever, clearly the chief issue in their life is the wrath of God. Compared to that, nothing else really matters. For the believer, the chief issue in our lives is daily rejecting the sin that we repent of and pursuing Christ-likeness. Our main aim is Christ-likeness, sanctification. 
Again, Jude tells us to hate even the garment stained by the flesh. We are to have no secret allowance for sin. We are to hate it with a passion. And Romans 8, as Wilson just mentioned, the goal of our salvation is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. Um, It's that we would be like Christ. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is the goal of everything that God is doing in our salvation for his glory. And in Romans 8.28, when everything works together for our good, that good is our Christ-likeness. Every providence God works together for our good is defined by our progress in Christ-likeness, not our comfort. And the problem for the discontented is they mix those two things up, just like we saw in Numbers 16. The, The good in our minds when we're discontent is whatever makes me feel happy, comfortable, prosperous here. And when I define good that way, and there is some providence of God that runs counter to that, there is tension, there is grading, there is the potential for bitterness and for anger. But when we get that prioritization right, when we realize that our chief issue, even as Christians, is sin, not because we're trying to avoid the wrath of God, but because God's goal and therefore our goal ought to be conformity to the image of Christ, when we get that prioritization right, discontentment is much harder to feel. If we really saw, really saw, and I'm speaking to myself here completely, but if we really saw the evilness of sin for what it was, the horror of what it was, and if, therefore, we treasured Christ-likeness as we ought, and if we knew that every providence of God hate the sin, love Christ-likeness, and we knew that every providence of God, however painful, was getting us away from the thing we hated and towards the thing that we loved, even though it was painful, why would you be discontent? It's when our prioritization is off that we feel discontent. It's when we miss the priority of sanctification, the priority of Christ-likeness, when something else becomes more important or equally important, when that health, wealth, and prosperity starts rising and gets anywhere near Christ-likeness, and we get that painful providence... There's a tension. There's a tension. And ironically, you're probably getting the painful providence because that thing is rising. Like, that's why it's happening. To shake you, to shake you out of that, 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 that stupor. Burroughs says, again, Oh, that we can convince men and women that a murmuring spirit is greater evil than any affliction, whatever the affliction, because of the priority of Christ-likeness. He has another quote worth reading. Um, he says, Has God made me see the dreadful evils of sin and made my soul sensible of the evil of sin as the greatest burden? If so, how can I be then so much troubled over every little affliction? Same point, same point. Discontentedness is evil because it completely misses the biblical priority of sanctification. God's goal and our own goals are the same and that we desire a happy life. Mm-hmm. And I think the problem is is our corruption, right? We don't see and are therefore blinded to what that happiness ought to look like. You know, you know our greatest happiness, like often articulated, is found in finding our joy in God himself. And, uh, and 
And so our goals are the same. It's just our fallenness, our sinfulness blinds us to what we think will bring us that happiness. And so, yeah, fully entrusting ourselves to God in His providence um, takes great faith, you know. And so, but but we're not in conflict with God. It's just our our because I think our hearts desire a happy life. It's just again, it's our corruption that leads us to um, believe we know better. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's a great point. So to emphasize that, uh, spending a second to do that, um, when, when we say, when I say that the priority is you know, Christ-likeness over health, wealth, and, and prosperity, that doesn't imply that Christ-likeness isn't the greatest, joyous, happiest place that we can be. Um, when we are pursuing what God has called us to, it is infinitely better than the broken cisterns that we left. It's infinitely better from the slavery that we had in Egypt, to, to paraphrase Moses in number 16. Um, the problem is that we have, it's not that we want to be happy. That's not an evil thing in and of itself. We just confuse what's actually going to make us happy. And in doing so, we prioritize creature comforts, worldly things here over Christ-likeness. Um, and if you're truly pursuing your own joy, you're going to be pursuing it in God, and it's going to be, in, in large case, irrespective of what happens here. So it's, a good, it's a good point, Matt. It's a great point. Christina. I'm trying to, I'm wrestling through this, though. Um, <laughs> totally fine. <laughs> but, um, but how often do we think we are content when we're actually being complacent or self-righteous or idolatrous? Like, and it looks like contentment. But it really is still in our comfort and our uh, and us in our way. It's a really, really good and hard question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think obviously yeah, each person is going to have a different answer. Um, but uh, Burroughs has a quote. I think I'm going to read it next week. But he says something to the effect of, you know, we're we're called out of the world. And when the Lord gives you a providence and that providence is going to take away something from you, if God has to wrestle it out of your cold, dead hands, it's probably an idol. It's not a good thing. If you can freely part with it, you're not tethered to it. And, you know, to that, to that sort of implied question, you know, how many of us feel happy and content because we don't have any problems Um, or our problems are minor. I mean, there's, there's a lot of sort of, the veneer of, 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 of contentedness simply because you don't have a whole lot of big negative things going on in your life. So when you, hit, when you get hit by that hard providence, whatever it happens to be, and your emotional reaction is, why me? This is unfair. You know, you, you react. Then not only are you probably discontent at that moment, but it may indicate that your contentedness prior was illusory. Anybody encouraged yet? Um, to- just to amen that. Just yeah, maybe instead of sitting around and, and being haunted by the question of what if I what if I think I'm content but I'm really not, I would say like what you just said, observing how we actually react. God is faithful to bring afflictions. And so that's the evidence is how do we react when those things do actually happen to us? Yeah. Um, which yeah, isn't always a comforting. <laughs> that, that, that is, it is helpful. It is helpful in exposing. It's true. It's true. Other questions, comments? All right.
All right, well, um, as I said, we're not getting through all of this, uh, but let's start looking at 3B. 3B. Uh, discontentedness is evil because it denies the blessings of our salvation. Um, and uh, Burroughs hammers this one home pretty hard. Uh, he argues that discontentedness is essentially a denial of our salvation. Now, to be clear, he's not saying that the discontented person has rejected the faith or has become an unbeliever again or anything like that. Uh, what he is arguing is that the discontented person has essentially neglected to remember and to trust and to rely on the incredible blessings that we have by virtue of what God has done for us in Christ. So when he says, you know, it's a denial of our salvation, it's a practical denial. You're, you're, you're ignoring, minimizing, going back to one of our seven points, uh, what God has done for you. Um, and he, but he's, he's, his point is that the biggest thing that God could ever do for you is what he has done for you in Christ. And so discontentedness is so evil because in order to be discontent, you have to completely ignore the glory of the gospel. So to prove that point... Um, he lists you know, a bunch of different ways, so C, D, E, F, these are all uh, examples of things that we have by virtue of the gospel that we have to deny in order to be discontent. And um, you know, going back to number 16, verse 8, remember when Moses is confronting you know, Korah, he says, is it, is it too small a thing that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself. Moses is calling out Korah in that context for neglecting the blessed role that God has given to the sons of Levi in the same way. Again, analogous, we have to minimize or, or deny the blessings of our salvation when we're discontented. Uh, so that first one there, it denies the love of God toward me in Christ in removing the wrath of God from me. Um, and maybe I'll go through one or two of these before we end. But look, the idea here is that if God loved me so much that he overcame, for lack of a better word, the natural, right, holy disgust that he would feel for me as a rebel. If he removed the penalty of hell that I so richly deserved when I hated him, when I was in active rebellion against him, if he loved me that much to do that when I felt towards him and acted towards him the way that I did, how crazy is it that I would ever believe that he would do anything less than my highest and best good after having saved me, after having forgiven me, after having clothed me with the righteousness of Christ. There, there's no more sin for me. There, he, he views me the same way he sees Jesus in terms of righteousness. The barrier that was my sin and rebellion against him is gone. He loved me so much to overcome that barrier how could I possibly imagine he would do anything less than what was the best thing for me? And Paul makes this point in Romans 5. He makes this point at the end of Romans 8. This is a emphatic principle. God has done the big thing. Of course he's going to do the rest. How crazy is it to think he's not? So when we're discontented about our circumstances, what we're essentially again saying is, God assured me. God has done less than the best thing for me. No, he hasn't. You're just misdefining the term. That's the problem. 
Second, it denies the worth and glory of Christ. And we'll end here. Burroughs essentially says, if we've seen the beauty and glory of Jesus, if we have beheld in him not just a treasure, but the greatest treasure, knowing that Jesus is ours now, how can we be worried about infinitesimally small costs of following him? If Jesus is the greatest treasure and we got him, what's everything else worth? It's nothing by comparison. It's nothing. Uh, Matthew thirteen forty four: the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The kingdom is worth any price. Jesus is worth any price. Uh, Philippians 3, 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Gain Christ, not the blessings he provides, certainly those two, but gain Christ, Christ himself. Philippians 1, 21, To live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus is the greatest treasure. Nothing compares to him. And we should be willing to suffer the loss of anything else because we got the thing that's worth infinitely more. Um, (laughs) Burroughs says, Has God converted you and drawn you to his son to cast your soul upon him for all your good, and yet you are discontented for the want of some little matter in a creature comfort? How sad is that? I'll end on, um, over the years, I have, as, as, as someone who you know, works in, in the state in, in a leadership position, I have been subjected to, I can't tell you how many training classes or leadership seminars or you know, all that kind of stuff. And at the beginning of all of them, there's the thing I hate the most, which is an icebreaker question. I hate them. Sitting around a table and someone asks you a question, you kind of have to like share with a bunch of strangers about your life in a way that's completely superficial and meaningless. But there's one that I kind of like. And it's, it's usually something along the lines of, tell me three things about you that define who you are. If I knew those three things, I'd get a glimpse as to who Jason is, or who Sarah is, or Tim, or Willie, or whoever. So you've got to come up with those three things. And if for the purpose of the exercise, you know, most people say something like, I'm a, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm an avid, insert hobby here, whatever. If we were answering that question as a Christian, the very first thing we're going to say is, I'm a lover of Jesus. And there's about a thousand blank spaces between that and the next thing. Whatever the next thing happens to be for you. Not that Jesus is here and then there's, there's, there's some second thing. No, no. There's a thousand blank spaces. That is the expectation and the priority in Scripture on the value and the worth of Jesus Christ compared to anything else. And if that's the case... Cancer, uh, a loss of a job, leaving, uh, not getting that promotion, you name it. It is infinitesimally small in comparison. Not that we wouldn't come around you, uh, if you if you were suffering. Not that we wouldn't weep with those who weep. Not that you don't actually have a need to you know eat or or, or be be clothed. It's not denying those things but it's putting them in their proper place and perspective. 
And the person who is discontent is certainly failing to do that. <sighs> All right. Questions before we close in prayer? Comments? It's going to be like this for three more weeks, people, so just, just keeping that in mind. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your endless grace and kindness to us that um, we who, who on the regular either aren't as grateful as we ought to be for the blessings that you have given us or who don't even see them in cases who could have endless joy as we reflect on the glory and the endless bounty of all the things that you have done for us in Christ and given us in Christ and promised us in Christ. We who have a tendency to shy away from those spiritual realities to focus on our stomachs here. And I just pray, Lord, that you would forgive us as we, as we, to whatever extent we have done those things. And I pray, Lord, that you would use today and our time over the next couple of weeks to diagnose any discontent that may be there. May we repent of it. May we reject it. May we yearn for a Christ-like submission to your will that treasures you above all else. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this body to encourage, edify, rebuke, and admonish anyone, Lord, who is struggling. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.